a hearing on the motion was set. The state did, in fact, join our motion to dismiss the charges, and I didn't expect the final hearing to last more than a few minutes. The night before, I'd driven down to Minnie to get a suit for Walter to wear at the hearing since he would finally be able to walk out of court a free man. When I arrived at her house, she gave me a long hug. It looked like she had been crying and hadn't slept. We sat down and she told me again how happy she was that they were letting him out. But she looked troubled. Finally, she turned to me. Brian, I think you need to tell him that maybe he shouldn't come back here. It's just all been too much. The stress, the gossip, the lies, everything. He doesn't deserve what they put him through and it will hurt me to my heart the rest of my life what they did to him and the rest of us. But I don't think I can go back to the way things were. Well, you all should talk when he gets home. We want to have everybody over when he gets out. We want to cook some good food and everybody will want to celebrate. But after that, maybe he should go to Montgomery with you. I had already talked with Walter about not staying his first few nights in Monroeville for security reasons. We had talked about him spending time with family members in Florida while we monitored the local reaction to his release, but I hadn't discussed his future with Minnie. I kept urging Minnie to talk with Walter when he got home, but it was clear she didn't have the heart for that. I drove back to Montgomery, sadly realizing that even as we stood on the brink of victory and what should have been a glorious release for Walter and his family, this nightmare would likely never be completely over for him. For the first time, I fully reckoned with the truth that the conviction, the death sentence, and the heartbreak and devastation of this miscarriage of justice had created permanent injuries. State, local, and national media outlets were crowded outside the courthouse when I arrived the next morning. Dozens of Walter's family members and friends from the community were there to greet him when he came out. They had made signs and banners which surprised me. They were such simple gestures, but I found myself deeply moved. The signs gave a silent voice to the crowd. Welcome home, Johnny D. God never fails. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. I went down to the jail and brought Walter his suit. I told him that a celebration was planned at his house after the hearing. The prison had not allowed Walter to bring his possessions to the courthouse, refusing to acknowledge that he might be released, so we would have to go back to Holman Prison to get his things before the homecoming at his house. I also told him that I'd reserved a hotel room for him in Montgomery and that it would probably be safest to spend the next few nights there. I reluctantly talked to him about my conversation with Minnie. He seemed surprised and hurt, but he didn't linger on it. This is a really happy day for me. Nothing can really spoil getting your freedom back. Well, y'all should talk at some point, I urged. I went upstairs to find Tommy Chapman waiting for me in the courtroom. After we're done, I'd like to shake his hand, he told me. Would that be all right? I think he'd appreciate that. This case has taught me things I didn't even know I had to learn. We've all learned a lot, Tommy. There were deputy sheriffs everywhere. When Bernard arrived, we consulted briefly at the council table before a bailiff asked us to go back to the judge's chambers. Judge Norton had retired weeks before the ruling from the Court of Criminal Appeals. The new judge, Pamela Bashab, greeted me warmly. We made small talk and then discussed what would happen during the hearing. 
Everyone was strangely pleasant. Mr. Stevenson, if you'll just present the motion and provide a brief summary, I don't need any arguments or statements. I intend to grant the motion immediately so you all can get home. We can get this done quickly. We went into the courtroom. There seemed to be more black deputies in the courtroom for this hearing than I'd ever seen in my appearances in that courthouse. There was no metal detector, no menacing dog. The courtroom was packed with Walter's family members and supporters. There were more cheering black folks outside the courthouse who couldn't get in. A horde of television cameras and journalists spilled out of the crowded courtroom. They finally brought Walter into the courtroom wearing the black suit and white shirt I'd brought him. He looked handsome and fit like a different man. The deputies didn't handcuff Walter or shackle him, so he walked into court waving to family and friends. His family had not seen him dressed in anything but his white prison uniform since the trial six years earlier, and many in the crowd gasped when he walked into the courtroom in a suit. For years, Walter's family members and supporters had been confronted with menacing stares and threats of expulsion whenever they expressed some spontaneous opinion during court proceedings. But today, the deputies accepted their expressive cheerfulness in silence. The judge took the bench and I stepped forward to speak. I gave a brief history of the case and informed the court that both the defendant and the state were moving the court to dismiss all charges. The judge quickly granted the motion and asked if there was anything further. All of a sudden, I felt strangely agitated. I'd expect it to be exuberant. Everyone was in such a good mood. The judge and the prosecutor were suddenly generous and accommodating. It was as if everyone wanted to be sure there were no hard feelings or grudges. Walter was rightfully ecstatic, but I was confused by my suddenly simmering anger. We were about to leave court for the last time, and I started thinking about how much pain and suffering had been inflicted on Walter and his family, the entire community. I thought about how if Judge Robert E. Lee Key hadn't overridden the jury's verdict of life imprisonment without parole and imposed the death penalty, which brought the case to our attention, Walter likely would have spent the rest of his life incarcerated and died in a prison cell. I thought about how certain it was that hundreds, maybe thousands of other people were just as innocent as Walter, but would never get the help they need. I knew this wasn't the place or time to make a speech or complain, but I couldn't stop myself from making one final comment. Your Honor, I just want to say this before we adjourn. It was far too easy to convict this wrongly accused man for murder and send him to death row for something he didn't do, and much too hard to win his freedom after proving his innocence. We have serious problems and important work that must be done in this state. I sat down and the judge pronounced Walter free to go. Just like that, he was a free man. Walter hugged me tightly and I gave him a handkerchief to wipe the tears from his eyes. I led him over to Chapman and they shook hands. The black deputies who had hovered nearby ushered us toward a back door that led downstairs, where a throng of reporters waited. One of the deputies patted me on the back, declaring, That's awesome, man, that's awesome. I asked Bernard to tell the family and supporters that we would meet them out front. Walter stood very close to me as we answered questions from the press. I could tell he was feeling overwhelmed, so I cut off the questions after a few minutes 
and we walked to the front door of the courthouse. TV camera crews followed us. As we walked outside, dozens of people cheered and waved their signs. Walter's relatives ran up to him to hug him, and they hugged me too. Walter's grandchildren grabbed his hands. Older people I hadn't previously met came up to hug him. Walter couldn't believe how many people were there for him. He hugged everyone. Even when some of the men came up to shake his hand, he gave them a hug. I told everyone that Bernard and I had to take Walter to the prison and that we would come to the house directly from there. It took nearly an hour to get through the crowd and into the car. On the drive to the prison, Walter told me that the men on death row had held a special service for him on his last night. They had come to pray for him and give him their final hugs. Walter said he felt guilty leaving them behind. I told him not to. They were all thrilled to know he was going home. His freedom was, in a small way, a sign of hope in a hopeless place. Despite my assurances that we'd be at the house shortly, everyone followed us to the prison. The press, the local TV crews, the family, everyone. When we got to Holman, a caravan of media and well-wishers trailed behind us. I parked and walked to the front gate to explain to the guard in the tower that I didn't have anything to do with all of the people. I knew that the warden had strict policies about the presence of people who didn't have business at the prison, but the guard waved us inside. No one tried to get the crowd to leave. We went to the prison office to collect Walter's possessions, his legal materials and correspondence with me, letters from family and supporters, a Bible, the Timex watch he was wearing when he was arrested, and the wallet he had had with him back in June 1987 when his nightmare began. The wallet still had $23 in it. Walter had given to other death row prisoners his fan, a dictionary, and the food items he had in his cell. I saw the warden peering at us from his office as we collected Walter's things, but he didn't come out. A few guards watched as we walked out the front gate of the prison. Lots of people were still gathered outside. I saw Mrs. Williams. Walter went up to her and gave her a hug. When their embrace released, she looked over and winked at me. I couldn't help but laugh. Men in their cells could see the crowd outside and started shouting encouragement to Walter as he walked away. We couldn't see them from outside the prison, but their voices rang out just the same. The voices were haunting because they were disembodied, but they were full of excitement and hopefulness. One of the last voices we heard was a man shouting, Stay strong, man! Stay strong! Walter shouted back, All right! As he walked to the car, Walter raised his arms and gently moved them up and down as if he meant to take flight. He looked at me and said, I feel like a bird. I feel like a bird. Chapter 12 Mother, Mother On a cool, crisp, mid-March evening, Marcia Colby stepped out onto the streets of New York City in an elegant royal blue gown with her husband beside her. She had dreamed of a moment like this for years. She took in the sights and sounds with great curiosity as they strolled down the busy sidewalks. Enormous buildings stretched to the sky in the distance while raucous traffic whizzed through the Greenwich Village streets. The clusters of New York students and artisans paid them no mind as they made their way through Washington Square Park. 
she noticed an amateur jazz trio laboring through standards on a park corner. It all seemed like something out of a movie. A white woman from a poor rural Alabama town, Marcia had never been to New York, but she was about to be honored at a dinner with two hundred guests. It was all exciting, but she was experiencing something unusual as she made her way to the venue. She soon sorted out what she was feeling: freedom. She was wandering the streets of the world's most dazzling city with her husband, and she was free. It was a glorious feeling. Everything in the last three months since her release had been magical. It was beyond what she could have imagined even before she was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole at the Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women. When Hurricane Ivan hit coastal Alabama and blew chaos and calamity into Marsha's life, she thought things were as bad as they could get. Ivan spawned 119 tornadoes and created over 18 billion dollars in damage. With six children to protect, she had no time to panic over the loss of their home or the violent destruction of everything around them. It was the uncertainty that worried Marcia. Where would she or her husband find work? How long would the kids be out of school? What would they do for money? What would they do for food? Everyone on the Gulf Coast was feeling vulnerable in the face of such an uncertain future. The constant wave of tropical storms and hurricanes that menaced coastal Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida in the summer of 2004 turned their relaxed southern coastal life into an apocalyptic struggle for survival. Marcia and Glenn Colby were living in a crowded trailer with their children, and they knew they were at risk when the hurricane warnings were announced. They weren't alone. Plenty of other families shared their situation, which offered some consolation. But when Ivan destroyed the Colby home in September, there was little comfort in finding herself in line with thousands of other people seeking assistance from the Federal Emergency Management Agency (FEMA). Aid eventually came. The Colbys were given a FEMA camper trailer as temporary housing, and they put it on their property so the kids could stay in their nearby schools. Marcia and Glenn had found construction work and roofing jobs at the start of the summer, but now it would be weeks before rebuilding jobs would be available. Marcia could also tell that she was pregnant. She was forty-three years old and hadn't planned on having another child. All she could think about was how, in a few months, the pregnancy would limit her ability to do construction work. Her worry sometimes tipped over into a deeper anxiety that triggered an old temptation. Drugs, but there were too many people depending on her, and there was too much to manage to give in. Five years earlier, police were called after nurses had found cocaine in her system when she was pregnant with her youngest son Joshua, and the authorities had terrified her with accusations and threats of criminal prosecution, imprisonment, and the seizure of her children. She was not going to risk that again. She and Glenn were dirt poor, but Marcia had always compensated for the things she couldn't give her kids by giving them all of her heart. She read to them, talked to them, played with them, hugged and kissed them constantly, and kept them close at all times. Against all odds, she nurtured a precious family bonded by an intense love. Her older boys, even her nineteen-year-old, stayed close to her at home despite the many distractions that emerged as they finished high school. Marcia liked being a mom. It's why she didn't worry about having so many kids. 
Getting pregnant with a seventh was not what she had expected or preferred, but she would love this child as she had loved each one before. By winter, things in Baldwin County had settled down. Jobs had returned, and Glenn finally found more steady work. The family was still struggling financially, but most of the kids were back in school, and it seemed as if they had survived the worst of the destruction. Marcia knew that a pregnancy at her age was very risky, but she couldn't afford to see a doctor. She just didn't have the money to spare. Having endured six previous deliveries, she knew what to expect and thought she'd make the best of it without prenatal care. She tried not to worry, even though she'd been experiencing some pains and problems with this pregnancy that she didn't remember having before. There had been bleeding. If she could have afforded an examination, a doctor would have found signs of placental abruption. Their old trailer sat next to the new FEMA camper and was largely uninhabitable, but it still had running water and a bathtub, which afforded Marcia a quiet getaway from time to time. One day she wasn't feeling well and thought a long, hot bath would do her good. She settled into a tub of hot water minutes before a violent labor began. She sensed it was happening too fast, and before she knew it, she delivered a stillborn son. She desperately tried to revive the infant, but he never took a breath. Although she'd initially fretted about the pregnancy, Marcia mourned the baby's death and insisted on giving him a name and a family burial. They named him Timothy and buried him in a marked grave beside their small camper home. The baby's stillbirth might have remained a private tragedy for Marcia and her family had it not been for a nosy neighbor who had long been suspicious of the Colbys. Debbie Cook noticed that Marcia Colby was no longer pregnant, but did not have a baby, which stirred her interest in the details of the stillbirth. Marcia didn't trust the woman, and was evasive when she made inquiries. Cook, who worked at the elementary school attended by Mrs. Colby's children, eventually instructed one of the school cafeteria workers to call the police about the absent infant. Officer Kenneth Llewellyn spoke with Ms. Cook, and then went to Ms. Colby's home. Marcia still grieving the loss of her baby and frustrated by the meddling, reacted badly to the police questioning. She initially attempted to misdirect the officer and the investigators in an effort to protect her privacy. It wasn't a smart thing to do, but she was outraged by their prodding. When Llewellyn noticed the marked grave beside the Colby's home, Marcia admitted it was the burial site for her recently delivered stillborn son. Kathleen Instance, a forensic pathologist who worked for the state, was summoned to exhume the infant's body. Marcia was shocked that law enforcement would do something so upsetting without justification. As soon as the baby was exhumed, but before she had an opportunity to formally examine the body, Instance told an investigator that she believed that the baby had been born alive. She later conceded that she had no basis for such an opinion, and that without an autopsy and tests, there was no way she could know if a baby had been born alive. As it turned out, Enstis had a history of prematurely and incorrectly declaring deaths to be homicides without adequate supporting evidence. The pathologist subsequently performed an autopsy at the Department of Forensic Sciences Laboratory in Mobile. She not only concluded that Marcia Colby's baby was born alive, but also asserted that the child would have survived with medical attention. Even though most experts agree that forensic pathologists, who primarily deal with dead people, 
are not qualified to estimate survival chances, the state allowed prosecutors to pursue criminal charges. Unbelievably, Marsha Colby, a few short weeks after delivering her stillborn son, found herself arrested and charged with capital murder. Alabama is among the growing list of states that make the murder of a person under the age of 14 a capital offense punishable by the death penalty. The child victim category resulted in a tremendous increase in the number of young mothers and juveniles who were sent to death row. All five women on Alabama's death row were condemned for the unexplained deaths of their young children or the deaths of abusive spouses or boyfriends, all of them. In fact, nationwide, most women on death row are awaiting execution for a family crime involving an allegation of child abuse or domestic violence involving a male partner. At trial, Kathleen Instis testified that Timothy was born alive and had died by drowning. She testified that her conclusion of a live birth was a diagnosis of exclusion. That is, she could not find evidence that the baby was stillborn and did not have another explanation for his death. Her testimony was exposed as unreliable by the state's own expert witness, Dr. Dennis McNally, an obstetrician, gynecologist who examined Mrs. Colby two weeks after the stillbirth. Dr. McNally testified that Mrs. Colby's pregnancy was at high risk for unexplained fetal death because of her age and lack of prenatal care. Instis' conclusion was further discredited by Dr. Werner Spitz, who had authored the medical treatise Instis had relied on in her forensic pathology training. Dr. Spitz testified for the defense that he would absolutely not declare a live birth, let alone a homicide, under the circumstances of this case. With no credible scientific evidence that a crime had occurred, the state introduced inflammatory evidence that Marcia was poor, a prior drug user, and obviously a bad mother for not seeking prenatal care. Police investigators went into her home and took photographs of an unflushed toilet and a beer can on the floor, which were waved in front of the jury as evidence of neglect and bad parenting. Mrs. Colby consistently maintained during multiple interrogations that the baby was stillborn. She told investigators that her son was born dead and never took a breath, despite her efforts to revive him. Mrs. Colby rejected the state's offer of a plea agreement, pursuant to which she would have gone to prison for 18 years because she was adamant that she had done nothing wrong. The prosecution of Marsha Colby eventually caught the attention of the press which was titillated by another dangerous mother story. The crime was sensationalized by the local media, which lauded the police and prosecutor for coming to the aid of a defenseless infant. Demonizing irresponsible mothers had become a media craze by the time Marsha's trial was scheduled. Tragic narratives of mothers killing their children were national sensations. When Andrea Yates drowned her five children in Texas in 2001, the tragedy became a national story. Susan Smith's effort to blame random black men for the death of her children in South Carolina before later admitting to murdering them fascinated crime-obsessed Americans. In time, media interest in these kinds of stories grew into a national preoccupation. Time magazine called the prosecution of Casey Anthony, the young Florida mother ultimately acquitted in the death of her two-year-old daughter, the social media trial of the century after the story generated nonstop coverage on cable networks. 
The murder of a child by a parent is horrific and is usually complicated by serious mental illness, as in the Yates and Smith cases. But these cases also tend to create distortions and bias. Police and prosecutors have been influenced by the media coverage, and a presumption of guilt has now fallen on thousands of women, particularly poor women in difficult circumstances, whose children die unexpectedly. Despite America's preeminent status among developed nations, we have always struggled with high rates of infant mortality, much higher than in most developed countries. The inability of many poor women to get adequate health care, including prenatal and postpartum care, has been a serious problem in this country for decades. Even with recent improvements, infant mortality rates continue to be an embarrassment for a nation that spends more on health care than any other country in the world. The criminalization of infant mortality and the persecution of poor women whose children die have taken on new dimensions in 21st century America, as prisons across the country began to bear witness. Communities were on the lookout for bad moms who should be put in prison. About the same time as Marsh's prosecution, Bridget Lee gave birth to a stillborn baby in Pickens County, Alabama. She was charged with capital murder and wrongfully imprisoned. Lee, a church pianist, mother of two, and bank bookkeeper, had gotten pregnant after an extramarital affair. Scared and depressed, the 34-year-old hid her pregnancy and hoped to secretly put the child up for adoption. But she went into labor five weeks before her due date, and the baby was stillborn. She didn't tell her husband about the stillbirth, which aroused suspicion. The disreputable circumstances surrounding Lee's pregnancy were enough to influence the pathologist who conducted the autopsy to conclude that the stillborn baby was born alive and was then suffocated by Lee. Months after Lee was arrested and charged with capital murder, six additional pathologists examined the body and unanimously concluded that neonatal pneumonia had killed the child. It was a classic stillbirth with very common features. This new information led the prosecutor to drop the charges, sparing Ms. Lee a capital trial and potentially the death penalty. The discredited pathologist left Alabama, but continues to serve as a practicing medical examiner in Texas. In hundreds of other cases, falsely accused women never received the forensic help they needed to avoid wrongful convictions. A few years earlier, before representing Marsha Colby, we took on the case of Diane Tucker and Victoria Banks, an intellectually disabled black woman living in Choctaw County, Alabama. Ms. Banks was accused of killing her newborn child even though police had no credible basis for believing she had ever been pregnant. Banks had allegedly told a deputy sheriff that she was pregnant to avoid time in jail for an unrelated matter. When she was seen months later with no child, police accused her of killing her infant. Disabled and without adequate legal assistance, Ms. Banks was coerced into pleading guilty to killing a child who had never existed along with her sister, Ms. Tucker. Because she was facing capital murder charges and a potential death sentence, she made a deal to accept a prison sentence of 20 years. Law enforcement officials refused to investigate her claims of innocence prior to sending her to prison. We won her freedom after establishing that she had had a tubal ligation five years prior to her arrest, which made it biologically impossible for her to conceive, let alone give birth to, a child. In addition to unexplained deaths of infants parented by poor women, 
other kinds of bad parenting have also been criminalized. In 2006, Alabama passed a law that made it a felony to expose a child to a dangerous environment in which the child could encounter drugs. This child chemical endangerment statute was ostensibly passed to protect children living in households where there were meth labs or drug trafficking operations. But the law was applied much more broadly, and soon thousands of mothers with children living in poor, marginalized communities where drugs and drug addiction are rampant were at risk of prosecution. In time, the Alabama Supreme Court interpreted the term environment to include the womb and the term child to include a fetus. Pregnant women could now be criminally prosecuted and sent to prison for decades if there was any evidence that they had used drugs at any point during their pregnancy. Dozens of women have been sent to prison under this law in recent years, rather than getting the help they needed. The hysteria surrounding bad mothers made a fair trial for Marsha Colby very difficult. During jury selection, numerous jurors announced that they could not be impartial toward Miss Colby. Some jurors indicated that they found allegations of killing a child so disturbing that they could not honor the presumption of innocence. Several revealed that they had such a close relationship with one of the state investigators, a key state witness who had been especially vocal about identifying bad mothers, that they would give him instant credibility and would, quote, believe everything he said was credible, end quote. Another juror admitted trusting law enforcement witnesses he knew to the point where he would, quote, believe anything they say, end quote. The trial court allowed almost all of these jurors to remain on the jury panel despite defense objections. Ultimately, a jury who brought many presumptions and biases to the trial of Marsha Colby was selected to decide her fate. The jury returned a verdict of guilty on one count of capital murder. Prior to rendering a verdict, jurors expressed concerns about Mrs. Colby being subject to the death penalty so the state agreed not to pursue an execution if she was found guilty. This concession yielded an immediate conviction. The trial court sentenced Mrs. Colby to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, and a short while later, she found herself shackled in a prison van, heading to the Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women. Built in the 1940s, Tutwiler Prison is situated in Wetumpka, Alabama. Named after a woman who promoted the education of prisoners and championed humane conditions of confinement, Tutwiler has become an overcrowded, dangerous nightmare for the women trapped there. Courts have repeatedly found the prison unconstitutionally overcrowded, with almost twice the number of women incarcerated as it was designed to hold. In the United States, the number of women sent to prison increased 646% between 1980 and 2010 a rate of increase 1.5 times higher than the rate for men. With close to 200,000 women in jails and prisons in America and over a million women under the supervision or control of the criminal justice system, the incarceration of women has reached record levels. At Tutwiler, women are crammed into dormitories and improvised living spaces. Marsha was shocked by the overcrowding. As the only state prison for women... Tutwiler has no way to meaningfully classify and assign women to appropriate dorms. Women battling serious mental illness or severe emotional problems are thrown in with other women, making dorm life chaotic and stressful for everyone.
Marcia could never quite get used to hearing women screaming and hollering inexplicably throughout the night in a crowded dorm. Most incarcerated women, nearly two-thirds, are in prison for non-violent, low-level drug crimes or property crimes. Drug laws in particular have had a huge impact on the number of women sent to prison. Three strikes laws have also played a considerable role. I started challenging conditions of confinement at Tutwiler in the mid-1980s as a young attorney with the Southern Prisoners' Defense Committee. At the time, I was shocked to find women in prison for such minor offenses. One of the first incarcerated women I ever met was a young mother who was serving a long prison sentence for writing checks to buy her three young children Christmas gifts without sufficient funds in her account. Like a character in a Victor Hugo novel, she tearfully explained her heartbreaking tale to me. I couldn't accept the truth of what she was saying until I checked her file and discovered that she had, in fact, been convicted and sentenced to over ten years in prison for writing five checks, including three to Toys R Us. None of the checks was for more than $150. She was not unique. Thousands of women have been sentenced to lengthy terms in prison for writing bad checks or for minor property crimes that trigger mandatory minimum sentences. The collateral consequences of incarcerating women are significant. Approximately 75 to 80 percent of incarcerated women are mothers with minor children. Nearly 65 percent had minor children living with them at the time of their arrest, children who have become more vulnerable and at risk as a result of their mother's incarceration, and will remain so for the rest of their lives, even after their mothers come home. In 1996, Congress passed welfare reform legislation that gratuitously included a provision that authorized states to ban people with drug convictions from public benefits and welfare. The population most affected by this misguided law is formerly incarcerated women with children, most of whom were in prison for drug crimes. These women and their children can no longer live in public housing, receive food stamps, or access basic services. In the last 20 years, we've created a new class of untouchables in American society, made up of our most vulnerable mothers and their children. Marsha wandered through her first days at Tutwiler in a state of disbelief. She met other women like herself who had been imprisoned after having given birth to stillborn babies. Afernia McClendon, a young black teenager from Opelika, Alabama, got pregnant in high school and didn't tell her parents. She delivered at just over five months and left the stillborn baby's remains in a drainage ditch. When they were discovered, she was interrogated by police until she acknowledged that she couldn't be 100% sure the infant hadn't moved before death, even though the premature delivery made viability extremely unlikely. Threatened with the death penalty, she joined a growing community of women in prison for having unplanned pregnancies and bad judgment. The lives and the suffering of the women got tangled together at Tutwiler. For Marcia, it was impossible not to notice that some women never got visits. She tried at first but couldn't remain indifferent to the people around her who seemed in acute distress, those who cried more than usual or who suffered the greatest anxiety about the children or parents they'd left behind or who seemed especially down or depressed. Knitted together as they were, a horrible day for one woman would inevitably become a horrible day for everyone. The only consolation in such an arrangement was that joyous moments were shared as well, a grant of parole, 
the arrival of a hoped-for letter, a visit from a long-absent family member would lift everyone's spirits. If the struggles of the other women had been Marsh's biggest challenge at Tutwiler, her years there would have been difficult but manageable. But there were bigger problems coming from the correctional staff itself. Women at Tutwiler were being raped by prison guards. Women were being sexually harassed, exploited, abused, and assaulted by male officers in countless ways. The male warden allowed the male guards entry into the showers during prison counts. Officers leered at the naked women and made crude comments and suggestive threats. Women had no privacy in the bathrooms where male officers could watch them use the toilet. There were dark corners and hallways, terrifying spaces at Tutwiler, where women could be beaten or sexually assaulted. EJI had asked the Department of Corrections to install security cameras in the dorms, but they refused. The culture of sexual violence was so pervasive that even the prison chaplain was sexually assaulting women when they came to the chapel. Shortly after Marsha arrived at Tutwiler, we won the release of Diane Jones, who had been wrongly convicted and sentenced to die in prison for a crime she had not committed. Diane had been wrongly implicated in a drug trafficking operation that involved her former boyfriend. She was convicted of multiple charges that triggered a sentence of mandatory life imprisonment without parole. We challenged her conviction and sentence and ultimately won her release. The release of Diane Jones, a condemned lifer, gave hope to all of the other lifers at Tutwiler. I received letters from women I'd never met thanking me for helping her. While working on her case, I'd go to Tutwiler to meet with Diane, who would tell me how the women were desperate for help. Brian, I have about nine notes people want me to pass to you. It was too many to get past the guard, so I didn't bring them, but these women want your help. Well, don't try to smuggle notes. They can write us. Well, some say they have written. We're swamped, Diane. I'm sorry, but we'll try to reply. I'm mostly worried about the lifers. They're the ones who will die in here. We're trying. There's only so much we can do. I tell them that. I know. They're just desperate, like I was desperate before y'all helped me. Marcia, Ashley, Monica, Patricia are sweating me to have you send someone to help. We met Marcia Colby shortly after that and began working on her appeal. We decided to challenge the state's case in the way the jury had been selected. Charlotte Morrison, a Rhodes Scholar and former student of mine, was now a senior attorney at EJI. She and staff attorney Kristen Nelson, a Harvard Law grad who had worked at the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia, the nation's premier public defender office, met with Marcia repeatedly. She would talk about her case, the challenge of keeping her family together while she was in prison, and a range of other problems. But it was the sexual violence at Tutwiler that most frequently came up during these visits. Charlotte and I took on the case of another woman who had filed a federal civil suit after she was raped at Tutwiler. She had had no legal help. Because of defects in her pleadings and the allegations she made in her complaint, we could secure only a small settlement judgment for her. But the details of her experience were so painful that we could no longer look past the violence. We started an investigation for which we interviewed over 50 women. We were truly shocked to see how widespread the problem of sexual violence had become. Several women had been raped and become pregnant. Even when DNA testing confirmed that male officers were the fathers of these children, very little was done about it. 
Some officers who had received multiple sexual assault complaints were temporarily reassigned to other duties or other prisons, only to wind up back at Tutwaller, where they continued to prey on women. We eventually filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Justice and released several public reports about the problem, which received widespread media coverage. Tutwiler made a list of the ten worst prisons in America compiled by Mother Jones. It was the only women's facility to be so dishonored. Legislative hearings and policy changes at the prison followed. Male guards are now banned from the shower areas and toilets, and a new warden has taken over the facility. Marcia held on despite these challenges and started advocating for some of the younger women. We were devastated when the Court of Criminal Appeals issued a ruling affirming her conviction and sentence. We sought review in the Alabama Supreme Court and won a new trial based on the trial judge's refusal to exclude people from jury service who were biased and could not be impartial. Marcia and our team were thrilled. Local officials in Baldwin County less so. They were threatening re-prosecution. We involved expert pathologists and persuaded local authorities that there was no basis on which to convict Marcia of murder. It took two years to settle the legal case, and then another year of wrangling with the Department of Corrections to give Marcia full credit for the time she'd served before she was finally freed in December 2012, after ten years of wrongful imprisonment. We had started holding annual benefit dinners each March in New York City to raise money for EJI. We usually honored a luminary in public service and a client. We'd previously honored Marion Wright Edelman, the heroic civil rights lawyer and founder of the Children's Defense Fund. In 2011, we honored retired U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. I had met Justice Stevens at a small conference when I was a young lawyer, and he had been extremely kind to me. By the time he retired, he'd become the court's most vocal critic of excessive punishment and mass incarceration. In 2013. Along with Marsha Colby, we decided to honor the charismatic former director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Elaine Jones, and the progressive ice cream icons Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield. Roberta Flack, the legendary singer and songwriter, agreed to perform. She sang the George Harrison tune "Isn't It a Pity" before it was time to present our award to Marsha. In my introduction. I told the audience how, on the day of her release from Tutwiler, Marcia had come to the office to thank everyone. Her husband and her two daughters had picked her up at Tutwiler. Her youngest daughter, who was about twelve, had reduced most of our staff to tears because she refused to let go of her mother the entire time she was in the office. She clung to Marcia's waist, kept hold of her arm, and leaned into her as if she intended to never let anyone physically separate them ever again. We took pictures with Marcia and some of the staff, and her daughter is in every shot because she refused to let her mother go. That told us a lot about what kind of mom Marcia Colby was. Marcia took the podium in her lovely blue dress. I want to thank all of you for recognizing me and what I've been through. Y'all are being very kind to me. I'm just happy to be free. She spoke to the large audience calmly and with a great deal of composure. She was articulate. And charming, she became emotional only when she talked about the women she'd left behind. I am lucky; I got help that most women can't get. 
It's what bothers me the most now, knowing that they are still there and I'm home. I hope we can do more to help more people. Her gown sparkled in the lights, and the audience rose to applaud Marcia as she wept for the women she'd left behind. Following her, I couldn't think of what to say. We need more hope. We need more mercy. We need more justice. I then introduced Elaine Jones, who began with, Marcia Colby, isn't she a beautiful thing? Chapter 13 Recovery Events in the days and weeks following Walter's release were completely unexpected. The New York Times covered his exoneration and homecoming in a front-page story. We were flooded with media requests, and Walter and I gave television interviews to local, national, and even international press who wanted to report the story. Despite my general reluctance about media on pending cases, I believe that if people in Monroe County heard enough reports that Walter had been released because he was innocent, there would be less resistance to accepting him when he returned home. Walter was not the first person to be released from death row after being proved innocent. Several dozen innocent people who had been wrongly condemned to death row had been freed before him. The Death Penalty Information Center reported that Walter was the 50th person to be exonerated in the modern era. Yet few of the earlier cases drew much media attention. Clarence Brantley's 1990 release in Texas attracted some coverage. His case had also been featured on 60 Minutes. Randall Dale Adams inspired a compelling, award-winning documentary film by Errol Morris called The Thin Blue Line. The movie had played a role in Adams' exoneration, and he was released from Texas's death row not long after its release. But there had never been anything like the coverage surrounding Walter's exoneration. In 1992, the year before Walter's release, 38 people were executed in the United States. This was the highest number of executions in a single year since the beginning of the modern death penalty era in 1976. That number rose to 98 in 1999. Walter's release coincided with increased media interest in the death penalty triggered by the increasing pace of executions. His story was a counter-narrative to the rhetoric of fairness and reliability offered by politicians and law enforcement officials who wanted more and faster executions. Walter's case complicated the debate in very graphic ways. Walter and I traveled to legal conferences and spoke about his experience and about the death penalty. The U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee scheduled hearings on innocence and the death penalty a few months after Walter's release, and we both testified. Pete Early's book, Circumstantial Evidence, was published a few months after Walter was freed, and it provided a detailed account of the case. Walter enjoyed the travel and the attention, even though he didn't much like speaking in public. Politicians would sometimes say provocative things, such as that his exoneration just proved the system works, which irritated and angered me. My own speaking would sometimes take on an edge of combativeness, but Walter remained calm, jovial, and earnest, and it was very effective, watching Walter tell his story with such good humor, intelligence, and sincerity heightened the horror our audiences felt that the state had been determined to execute this man in all of our names. 
It was a compelling presentation. We spent a good bit of time together, and Walter would occasionally share with me that he was still troubled by the cases of the men he'd left behind on death row. He thought of the guys on the row as his friends. Behind his gentle presentations, Walter had become fiercely opposed to capital punishment, an issue he readily admitted he had never thought about until his own experience confronting it. A few months after winning his freedom, I was still nervous about Walter's return to Monroe County. The big feast immediately following his release had brought hundreds of people to his home to celebrate his freedom, but I knew that not everyone in the community was overjoyed. I didn't tell Walter about the death threats and bomb threats we'd received until he was free, and then I told him that we needed to be careful. He spent his first week out of prison in Montgomery. He then moved to Florida to live with his sister for a couple of months. We still talked almost every day. He'd accepted that many wanted to move forward without him and seemed mostly happy and hopeful. But that didn't mean that there were no after-effects from his time in prison. He started telling me more and more about how unbearable it had been to live under the constant threat of execution on death row. He admitted fears and doubts he hadn't told me about when he was incarcerated. He had witnessed six men leave for execution while he was on the row. At the time of the executions, he coped, as the other prisoners did, through symbolic protests and private moments of anguish. But he told me that he didn't realize how much the experience had terrified him until he left prison. He was confused about why that would bother him now that he was free. Why do I keep thinking about this? He sometimes complained of nightmares. A friend or a relative might say something about how they supported the death penalty, just not for Walter, and he would find himself shaken. All I could tell him was that it would get better. After a few months, Walter very much wanted to return to the place he'd spent his whole life. It made me nervous, but he went ahead and put a trailer on property he owned in Monroe County and resettled there. He returned to logging work while we made plans to file a civil lawsuit against everyone involved in his wrongful prosecution and conviction. Most people released from prison after being proved innocent received no money, no assistance, no counseling, nothing from the state that wrongly imprisoned them. At the time of Walter's release, only ten states in the District of Columbia had laws authorizing compensation to people who had been wrongly incarcerated. The number has since grown, but even today, almost half of all states, 22, offer no compensation to the wrongly imprisoned. Many of the states that do authorize some monetary aid severely limit the amount of compensation. No matter how many years an innocent person has been wrongly incarcerated, New Hampshire caps compensation at $20,000. Wisconsin has a $25,000 cap. Oklahoma and Illinois limit the total amount an innocent person can recover to under 200000 even if the person has spent decades in prison. While other states have caps of more than a million dollars, and many have no cap at all, several states impose onerous eligibility requirements. In some jurisdictions, if the person lacks the support of the prosecuting attorney who wrongly convicted him, compensation will be denied. At the time Walter was set free, 
Alabama was not among the handful of states that provided aid to innocent people released from prison. The Alabama legislature could pass a special bill granting compensation to a person wrongly convicted, but that almost never happened. A local legislator introduced a bill seeking compensation on Walter's behalf that prompted the local press to report that Walter was seeking $9 million. The proposed legislation, of which Walter had no prior knowledge, went nowhere. But the news coverage about the possible $9 million payoff outraged people in Monroeville who still questioned his innocence and titillated some of Walter's friends and family, a few of whom started soliciting him aggressively for financial help. One woman even filed a paternity suit, falsely claiming that Walter was the father of her child, a child that was born less than eight months after Walter's release. DNA tests confirmed that he was not the father. Walter at times expressed frustration that people didn't believe him when he told them he had received nothing. We pressed ahead in our efforts to get compensation for him through a lawsuit, but there were obstacles. Our civil suit ran up against laws that give police, prosecutors, and judges special immunity from civil liability in criminal justice matters. While Chapman and the state officers connected with the case now readily acknowledged Walter's innocence, they were unwilling to accept any responsibility for his wrongful prosecution and death sentence. Sheriff Tate, who seemed most active in Walter's wrongful pretrial placement on death row, and whose racist threats and intimidation tactics seemed the most actionable in a civil suit, reportedly accepted Walter's innocence upon his release, but then started telling people that he still believed Walter was guilty. Rob McDuff, an old friend of mine from Jackson, Mississippi, agreed to join our team for the civil litigation. Rob is a white native Mississippian whose southern charm and manner enhanced his outstanding litigation skills in Alabama courts. He had recently asked me to help him with an Alabama civil rights case involving law enforcement misconduct. That case involved a police raid on a nightclub in Chambers County during which black residents had been illegally detained, mistreated, and abused by local authorities who refused to accept any responsibility for their misconduct. We ended up taking the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we ultimately won a favorable ruling. Walter's civil case would also go to the U.S. Supreme Court. We sued almost a dozen state and local officials and agencies. As expected, the defendants all claimed immunity for the conduct that had resulted in Walter's wrongful conviction. The immunity from civil liability given to prosecutors and judges is even greater than the protections provided to law enforcement officers. So even though it was clear that Ted Pearson, the prosecutor who had tried the case against Walter, had illegally withheld evidence that directly resulted in Walter's wrongful conviction, we would likely not succeed in a civil action against him. As he was the person most in charge of Walter's wrongful prosecution and conviction, it was hard to reconcile his immunity with his culpability in the whole affair, but there was little we could do. State and federal courts have persistently insulated prosecutors from accountability for egregious misconduct that results in innocent people being sent to death row. In 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court again reinforced the protections that shield prosecutors from accountability. A month before an inmate named John Thompson was scheduled to be executed in Louisiana, 
a crime lab report was uncovered that contradicted the state's case against him for a robbery murder that had taken place 14 years earlier. State courts overturned his conviction and death sentence, and he was subsequently acquitted of all charges and released. He filed a civil suit, and a New Orleans jury awarded Thompson $14 million. The jury found that the district attorney, Harry Connick Sr., had illegally suppressed evidence of Thompson's innocence and had allowed him to spend 14 years in prison for a crime he had not committed. Connick appealed the judgment, and the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the award in a bitterly divided 5-4 decision. As a result of immunity law, the court held that a prosecutor cannot be held liable for misconduct in a criminal case even if he intentionally and illegally withheld evidence of innocence. The court's decision was strongly criticized by scholars and court observers, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a compelling dissent. But Thompson did not get any money. We faced similar obstacles in Walter's case. After a year of depositions, hearings, and pretrial litigation, we eventually reached a settlement with most of the defendants that would provide Walter with a few hundred thousand dollars. Walter's claim against Monroe County for Sheriff Tate's misconduct could not be settled, so we appealed the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Law enforcement officers generally have no personal resources to pay damages to victims of misconduct, so the city, county, or agency that employs them is typically the target of any civil action that seeks compensation. That's why we had sought relief from Monroe County for the misconduct of its sheriff. The county took the position that even though the sheriff's jurisdiction is limited to the county, he's elected by people only in the county, and he's paid by the county, he's not an employee of the county. The county sheriff was an employee of the state of Alabama, the county claimed. State governments are broadly shielded from recovery for their employees' misconduct unless the employee works for an agency that can be sued. If Tate was a state officer, Monroe County would have no liability for his misconduct and no recovery would be possible from the state of Alabama. Unfortunately for Walter, the Supreme Court ruled that county sheriffs in Alabama are state officers. Again, in a close 5-4 decision, which limited our ability to recover damages for the most egregious misconduct in Walter's case. We ultimately reached settlement with all parties, but I was disappointed that we couldn't get more for Walter. Adding insult to injury, Tate went on to be re-elected sheriff, and he remains in office today. He has been sheriff continuously for more than 25 years. While the money wasn't as much as we would have liked, it did allow Walter to restart his logging business. He loved getting back into the woods and cutting timber. He told me that it was working from morning until night, being outdoors that made him feel normal again. Then one afternoon, tragedy struck. He was cutting a tree when a branch dislodged and struck him, breaking his neck. It was a serious injury that left Walter in very poor condition for several weeks. He didn't have a lot of care available, so he came to live with me in Montgomery for several months while he recovered. He eventually regained his mobility, although the injury put an end to his ability to cut trees 
and perform difficult landscape work. I marveled at how he seemed to take it in stride. I'll figure out something else to do when I get back on my feet, he told me. After a few months, he went back to Monroe County and started collecting car parts for resale. He owned the plot of land where he'd put his trailer and had become convinced, on the advice of some friends, that he could generate income with a junk business, collecting discarded vehicles and car parts and reselling them. The work was less physically demanding than logging and allowed him to be outdoors. Before long, his property was littered with busted vehicles and scrap metal. In 1998, Walter and I were asked to go to Chicago to attend a national conference where exonerated former death row prisoners were planning to gather. By the late 1990s, the evolution of DNA evidence had helped expose dozens of wrongful convictions. In many states, the number of exonerations exceeded the number of executions. The problem was so significant in Illinois that in 2003, Governor George Ryan, a Republican, citing the unreliability of capital punishment, commuted the death sentences of all 167 people on death row. Concerns about innocence in the death penalty were intensifying, and support for the death penalty in opinion polls began to drop. Abolitionists were becoming hopeful that more profound death penalty reform, or possibly a moratorium, might be achievable. Our time in Chicago with other exonerated former death row prisoners was energizing for Walter, who seemed more motivated than ever to talk about his experience. Around the same time, I started teaching at the New York University School of Law. I would travel to New York to teach my classes and then fly back to Montgomery to run EJI. I asked Walter to come to New York each year to talk with students, and it was always a powerful moment when he walked into the classroom. He was a survivor of a criminal justice system that had proven, in his case, just how brutally unfair and cruel it could be. His personality, presence, and witness said something extraordinary about the humanity of people directly impacted by systemic abuse. His first hand perspective on the plight of people wrongfully convicted was deeply meaningful to students, who often seemed overwhelmed by Walter's testimony. He usually spoke very briefly and would give short answers to the questions posed to him, but he had an enormous effect on the students who met him. He would laugh and joke and tell them he wasn't angry or bitter, just grateful to be free. He would share how his faith had helped him survive his hundreds of nights on death row. One year, Walter got lost on the trip to New York, and he called to tell me that he couldn't make it. He seemed confused and couldn't offer a coherent explanation of what had happened at the airport. When I got back home, I went to see him and he seemed his usual self, just a little down. He told me that his junkyard business wasn't going great. When he described his finances, it became clear he was spending the money we'd secured for him more quickly than seemed prudent. He was buying equipment to make his collection of cars simpler. But he wasn't generating the kind of revenue necessary to support the costs. After an hour or two of anxious talk, he relaxed a bit and seemed to return to the jovial Walter I'd come to know. We agreed that we would travel together on any future trips. Walter wasn't the only one who was facing new financial pressures. When a conservative majority took power in Congress in 1994, 
legal aid to death row prisoners became a political target, and federal funding was quickly eliminated. Most of the capital representation resource centers around the country were forced to close. We had never received state support for our work, and without the federal dollars, we faced serious financial challenges. We scraped along and found enough private support to continue our work. Teaching and increased fundraising responsibilities got piled on top of my bulging litigation docket, but somehow things progressed. Our staff was overextended, but I was thrilled with the talented lawyers and professionals we had working with us. We were assisting clients on death row, challenging excessive punishments, helping disabled prisoners, assisting children incarcerated in the adult system, and looking at ways to expose racial bias, discrimination against the poor. And the abuse of power. It was overwhelming but gratifying. I received a surprising call one day from the Swedish ambassador to the United States, who told me that EJI had been selected for the Olaf Palma International Human Rights Award. They invited me to Stockholm to receive it. I had studied Sweden's progressive approach to the rehabilitation of criminal offenders as a graduate student, and had long marvelled at how focused on recovery their system appeared. Their punishments were humane, and their policymakers took rehabilitation of criminal offenders very seriously, which made me excited about the award and the trip. That they were giving an award named after a beloved prime minister who had been tragically murdered by a deranged man. To someone who represented people on death row, revealed a lot about their values. The trip to Stockholm was planned for January. They sent a film crew to interview me a month or two before the trip, and the crew also wanted to speak with a few clients. I made arrangements for them to interview Walter. I can come down for this interview, I told Walter. No, you don't need to do that. I don't have to travel, so I'm okay to talk to them. Don't spend time driving all the way down here. Do you want to go to Sweden? I asked, half joking. I don't know exactly where that is, but if you have to fly a long way to get there, no, I'm not too interested. I think I'd like to stay on the ground from now on. We laughed, and he sounded fine. He then became quiet and asked one final question before we hung up. Maybe you can come and see me when you get back. I'm okay, but we can just hang out. It was an unusual request from Walter, so I eagerly agreed. Sure, that would be great. We can go fishing. I teased. I'd never gone fishing in my life, and Walter found that so scandalous that he never stopped questioning me about it. When we traveled together, I never ordered fish to eat, and he was sure I didn't eat fish because I'd never caught a fish. I tried to follow his logic and made promises, but we had never gotten around to taking a fishing trip. The Swedish film crew was eager to meet the challenge of finding Walter's trailer in the backwoods of South Alabama. I told them how to get there. I'd always been with Walter when he spoke to the press, but I felt like this was probably safe. He doesn't give speeches. He's usually very direct and succinct. I told the interviewers, "He's great, but you should ask him good questions. And it's probably better if you talk to him outside too. He prefers to be outdoors." They nodded sympathetically, but seemed confused by my anxiety. I called Walter before leaving for Sweden, and he told me that the interview had gone fine, which was reassuring. Stockholm was beautiful, despite the constant snow and frigid temperatures. I gave some speeches and attended a few dinners. It was a short, cold trip, 
but the people were lovely and unusually kind to me. I was surprised at how gratifying I found their enthusiasm for our work. Most everyone I met offered support and encouragement. A couple of years earlier, I had been invited to Brazil to talk about punishment and the unjust treatment of disfavored people. I had spent a lot of time in local communities, mostly in the favelas outside São Paulo, where I met hundreds of desperately poor people who were intensely interested in talking. I spent hours in conversation with all sorts of people, from struggling mothers to impoverished children who sniffed glue to help them cope with hunger and police brutality. The cross-cultural conversations with those people, who had shared a lot of the same history and struggle as my client in America, had a huge impact on me. In Sweden, the people I met were equally interested and responsive, even though they hadn't experienced profound need or shared struggle with an abusive justice system. People all over the country seemed motivated to connect from a common place of tremendous compassion. The organizers asked me to speak at a high school on the outskirts of Stockholm. Kungsholmen's gymnasium is in an extraordinarily beautiful section of Stockholm, an island surrounded by 17th-century architecture. As an American with limited experience outside the United States, I was dazzled by the age of the buildings and marvelled at their ornate architecture. The school itself was nearly a hundred years old. I was escorted through the school to a narrow, winding staircase with handcrafted railings that led up to a cavernous auditorium. Several hundred high school students packed the room, waiting for my presentation. The domed ceiling of the enormous hall was covered with delicate hand paintings and Latin phrases written in decorative script. Floating angels and trumpet-wielding infants. Danced all over the walls and ceiling. A large balcony packed with more students seemed to ascend elegantly into the drawings. While the room was very old, the acoustics were perfect, and there was a balance and precision to the space that seemed almost magical. I studied the hundreds of Scandinavian teenagers seated in the hall while I was being introduced. I was impressed by how eager they appeared. I spoke for forty-five minutes to the strangely silent and attentive group of teens. I knew English wasn't their first language and had real doubts about how much they were even following what I said. But when I finished, they erupted into vigorous applause. Their response actually startled me. They were so young, but so interested in the plight of my condemned clients thousands of miles away. The headmaster joined me on stage to thank me. And suggested to the students that they offer their own thanks with a song. The school had an internationally famous music program and student choir. The headmaster asked the choir students to stand wherever they were in the auditorium and briefly sing something. About fifty giggling kids stood up and looked around at each other. After a minute of uncertainty, a seventeen-year-old boy with strawberry blonde hair. Stood on his chair and said something to his choir mates in Swedish. The students laughed, but they became more sober. As they became still and perfectly quiet, the boy hummed a note in a beautiful tenor voice. His pitch was perfect. Then he slowly waved his arms to prompt these extraordinary children to sing. Their voices bounced off the walls and ceiling of this ancient hall and fell into a glorious harmony. The likes of which I'd never heard. 
After starting his classmates in song, the young man stepped off his chair and joined them in performing a heartbreaking melody with tremendous care and precision. I could not understand a word of the Swedish lyrics, but it sounded angelic. Dissonance and harmonic tension slowly resolved into warm chords. The sound was transcendent. The singing built gloriously with each line. Standing on a stage above the singers with the headmaster beside me, I looked up at the ceiling, at the majestic artwork. My mother had died a few months before this trip. She'd been a church musician most of her life and had worked with dozens of children's choirs. When I looked up and saw the drawings of angels on the domed ceiling, I thought of her. I quickly realized I would never recover my composure looking up there, so I looked back at the students and forced a smile. When the students finished their song, the rest of the students cheered and applauded wildly. I joined the applause and tried to hold myself together. When I left the stage, students came up to thank me for the talk, ask questions, and take pictures. I was completely charmed. It was a long and exhausting but beautiful day. When I got back to the hotel, I was grateful for the two-hour break before my next speaking commitment. I don't know what prompted me to turn on the television, but I'd been away from home for four days and hadn't seen any headlines. The local news blasted into my room. The unfamiliar Swedish TV anchors were chatting away when I heard my name. It was the piece the crew had filmed with me. Familiar images filled the screen. I watched myself walking with the reporter into Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s church on Dexter Avenue in Montgomery, then up the street to the Civil Rights Memorial. The scene then switched to Walter, standing in overalls amid his pile of discarded cars down in Monroeville. Walter gently put down a little kitten he'd been holding as he started to answer the reporter's questions. He'd mentioned to me previously that all kinds of cats had sought shelter in his field of abandoned metal. He said things I'd heard him say dozens of times before. Then I watched his expression change, and he began talking with more animation and excitement than I'd ever heard from him. He became uncharacteristically emotional. They put me on death row for six years. They threatened me for six years. They tortured me with the promise of execution for six years. I lost my job. I lost my wife. I lost my reputation. I lost my... I lost my dignity. He was speaking loudly and passionately and looked to be on the verge of tears. I lost everything, he continued. He calmed himself and tried to smile, but it didn't work. He looked soberly at the camera. It's rough. It's rough, man. It's rough. I watched worriedly while Walter crouched down close to the ground and began to sob violently. The camera stayed on him while he cried. The report switched back to me saying something abstract and philosophical, and then it was over. I was stunned. I wanted to call Walter, but I couldn't figure out how to dial him from Sweden. I knew it was time to get back to Alabama. Chapter 14 Cruel and Unusual On the morning of May 4, 1989, Michael Gully, 15, and Nathan McCants, 17, convinced 13-year-old Joe Sullivan to accompany them when they broke into an empty house in Pensacola, Florida. The three boys entered the home of Lena Bruner in the morning while no one was there.
McCants took some money and jewelry. The three boys then left. That afternoon, Ms. Bruner, an older white woman in her early seventies, was sexually assaulted in her home. Someone knocked on her door, and as she went to open it, another person who had entered through the back of her home grabbed her from behind. It was a violent and shocking rape. Ms. Bruner never even saw her attacker clearly. She could describe him only as quite a dark-colored boy with curly-type hair. Gully, McCants, and Sullivan are all African American. Within minutes of the assault, Gully and McCants were apprehended together. McCants had Ms. Bruner's jewelry on him. Facing serious felony charges, Gully, who had an extensive criminal history involving at least one sexual offense, accused Joe of the sexual battery. Joe was not apprehended that day, but he voluntarily turned himself in the next day, after learning that Gully and McCants had implicated him. Joe admitted helping the older boys with the burglary earlier in the day, but adamantly denied any knowledge of or involvement in the sexual assault. The prosecutor chose to indict 13-year-old Joe Sullivan in adult court for sexual battery and other charges. There was no review of whether Joe should be tried in juvenile or adult court. Florida is one of a few states that allows the prosecutor to decide to charge a child in adult court for certain crimes, and has no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. At trial, Joe testified that he had participated in the earlier burglary, but had not committed sexual battery. The prosecution relied primarily on the self-serving stories of McCants and Gully, including Gully's claim that Joe had confessed the rape to him. In a detention facility before trial, after implicating Joe, McCants was sentenced as an adult to four and a half years and served just six months. Gully, despite admitting his involvement in some twenty prior burglaries and a prior sex crime, was adjudicated and sentenced as a juvenile and spent only a short period of time in a juvenile detention facility. The only physical evidence to implicate Joe was a latent partial palm print. That the state's examiner testified matched him. This was consistent with Joe's admitted presence in the bedroom prior to the rape. The police had collected seminal fluid and blood, but the state chose not to present it in court, and then destroyed it before it could be tested by the defense. The prosecution also presented testimony from a police officer who got a glimpse of an African American youth running from the victim's house. After he observed Joe Sullivan at the police station being interrogated as the suspect in the sexual assault, he identified Joe as the fleeing youth. Finally, the prosecution presented testimony from the victim, who, despite being coached through a rehearsal of her testimony outside the presence of the jury, could not affirmatively identify Joe Sullivan as the perpetrator. Joe was made to say in court what the victim remembered her assailant saying to her. But she testified that Joe's voice could very easily be that of the perpetrator. Joe was convicted by a six-person jury after a trial that lasted only one day. Opening statements began sometime after 9 a.m., and the jury returned its verdict at 4:55 p.m. Joe's appointed counsel was later suspended from practice in Florida and never reinstated. The defense lawyer had filed no written pleadings. And uttered no more than twelve transcript lines at sentencing.
there was a great deal to say that was never said. At the time of his arrest in 1989, Joe Sullivan was a 13-year-old boy with mental disabilities who read at a first-grade level, had experienced repeated physical abuse by his father, and had suffered severe neglect. His family had disintegrated into what state officials described as abuse and chaos. From age 10 until his arrest, Joe had no stable home. He had no fewer than 10 different addresses within this three-year period. He spent most of his time on the streets, where police stopped him for violations including trespassing, stealing a bike, and property crimes committed with his older brother and other older teens. Joe had been brought to court and adjudicated on a single occasion when he was 12 years old. The juvenile probation officer assigned to Joe's case attributed his behavior to the fact that he's easily influenced and associates with the wrong crowd. She observed that it is apparent that Joe is a very immature, naive person who is a follower rather than a leader, and that he has the potential to be a positive and productive individual. Joe's record of mostly misdemeanor-level juvenile incidents, nearly all of which were nonviolent and which did not merit more than a single court adjudication in a two-year period, was viewed differently by the sentencing judge, who concluded that the juvenile system has been utterly incapable of doing anything with Mr. Sullivan. The court concluded that Joe had been given opportunity after opportunity to upright himself and take advantage of the second and third chances he's been given. In truth, Joe was never given a second, much less a third chance to upright himself, but he was nonetheless characterized at age 13 as a serial or violent recidivist by prosecutors. The judge sentenced him to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Despite numerous potentially meritorious grounds for appeal, Joe's appointed appellate counsel filed an Anders brief, indicating his belief that there were no legitimate grounds for appeal and no credible basis to complain about the conviction or sentence, and was permitted to withdraw from representing Joe. Joe, just one year into his own adolescence, was sent to adult prison, where an 18-year nightmare began. In prison, he was repeatedly raped and sexually assaulted. He attempted suicide on multiple occasions. He developed multiple sclerosis, which eventually forced him into a wheelchair. Doctors later concluded that his neurological disorder might have been triggered by trauma in prison. Another inmate housed with Joe wrote to us and described him as disabled, horribly mistreated, and wrongfully condemned to die in prison for a non-homicide crime at 13. In 2007, we wrote to Joe and discovered that he had no legal assistance and had spent the previous 18 years in prison with no one to help him challenge his conviction or sentence. When I received Joe's response to my letter, a scribbled note in the handwriting of a child, he could still only read at a third grade level, despite the fact that he was 31. He told me in his letter that he was okay. Then he wrote, If I didn't do anything, shouldn't I be able to go home now? Mr. Bryan, if this is true, can you please write me back and come get me? I wrote to Joe that we would look deeper into his case and that we were convinced that he had a credible claim of innocence. 
We attempted to prove his innocence through a motion for DNA testing, but because the state had destroyed the relevant biological evidence, the motion was denied. Disheartened, we decided to challenge Joe's death in prison sentence as unconstitutionally cruel and unusual punishment. I drove from Montgomery through South Alabama to Florida, and then along a tangle of wooded back roads to get to the Santa Rosa Correctional Facility in the town of Milton to meet Joe for the first time. Santa Rosa County borders the Gulf of Mexico at the western end of the Florida Panhandle and had long been known for agriculture. Between 1980 and 2000, the county's population doubled in size as the coastal areas attracted beach homes and resort properties. Many affluent families left Pensacola for Santa Rosa County, and military families from nearby Eglin Air Force Base settled there. But there was another industry in town, incarceration. The Florida Department of Corrections built the prison to house 1,600 people in the 1990s, when America was opening prisons at a pace never before seen in human history. Between 1990 and 2005, a new prison opened in the United States every 10 days. Prison growth and the resulting prison-industrial complex, the business interests that capitalize on prison construction, made imprisonment so profitable that millions of dollars were spent lobbying state legislators to keep expanding the use of incarceration to respond to just about any problem. Incarceration became the answer to everything. Healthcare problems like drug addiction, poverty that had led someone to write a bad check, child behavioral disorders, managing the mentally disabled poor. Even immigration issues generated responses from legislators that involved sending people to prison. Never before had so much lobbying money been spent to expand America's prison population, block sentencing reforms, create new crime categories, and sustain the fear and anger that fuel mass incarceration than during the last 25 years in the United States. When I arrived at Santa Rosa, I didn't encounter any staff who were people of color, although 70% of the men incarcerated there were black or brown. This was a bit unusual. I frequently saw black and brown correctional officers at other prisons. I was subjected to an elaborate admission process and given a beeper to activate if I was ever threatened or distressed while inside the prison. I was escorted to a 40-by-40-foot room where more than two dozen incarcerated men sat sadly while uniformed correctional staff buzzed in and out. There were three six-foot-tall metal cages in the corner that couldn't have been more than four feet by four feet. In all my years of visiting prisons, I'd never seen such small cages used to hold a prisoner inside a secure prison. I wondered what danger the caged men presented that they couldn't sit with the other incarcerated men on the benches. Two young men stood in each of the first two cages. In the third cage, which was wedged into the corner, sat a small man in a wheelchair. His wheelchair faced the back of the cage so he could not look out into the room. I couldn't see his face, but I was certain it was Joe. A correctional officer was constantly walking into the room and calling out a name, prompting one of the men to get up from his bench and follow the officer down a hallway where he would meet with an assistant warden or whomever they were scheduled to see. Finally, the officer called out, Joe Sullivan, legal visit. I walked over to the man and said that I was the attorney for the legal visit. He summoned two officers who went to Joe's cage to unlock it. 
The cage was so small that when they tried to remove Joe's wheelchair, the spokes on the chair got caught on the cage, and they couldn't budge it. I stood there watching for several minutes while more officers got involved in an increasingly elaborate effort to dislodge Joe's wheelchair from the tight cage. They pulled up on the wheelchair, then they pushed down on the chair, raising the front off the ground, but this didn't work either. They tugged at the chair with loud grunts and tried to force it free, but it was completely stuck. Two inmate trustees who had been mopping the floor stopped to watch the officers struggle with the wheelchair and the cage. They finally offered to help out, even though no one had asked for their input. The officers silently accepted the assistance of the inmates, but none of them could come up with a solution. As the staff became more frustrated by their inability to get Joe out of the cage, there was talk of using pliers and hacksaws, of putting the cage on its side with Joe in it. Someone suggested trying to lift Joe from his wheelchair to remove him without the chair, but both Joe and the chair were packed so tightly into the cage that no one could get in to move him. I asked the guards why he was in the cage in the first place, which prompted a brusque response. Lifer. All lifers have to be moved with higher security protocols. I couldn't see Joe's face while all of this was going on, but I could hear him crying. He occasionally made a whining sound, and his shoulders jerked up and down. When the staff proposed turning the cage on its side, he moaned audibly. Finally, the prisoner trustee suggested lifting the cage and tilting it slightly, which everyone agreed to try. The two trustees lifted and tilted the heavy cage, while three officers yanked Joe's chair with a violent pull that finally dislodged it. The guards gave each other high fives. The inmate trustees walked away silently, and Joe sat motionlessly in his chair in the middle of the room, looking down at his feet. I walked over to him and introduced myself. His face was tear-stained and his eyes were red, but he looked up at me and began clapping his hands giddily. Yay! Yay! Mr. Bryan! He smiled and offered me both of his hands, which I took. I wheeled Joe to a cramped office for our legal visit. He continued cheering quietly and kept clapping his hands in excitement. I had to argue with the attending prison guard for permission to close the door and talk confidentially with Joe. The officer eventually relented. Joe seemed to relax when I closed the door. Despite the terrifying start to the visit, he was extremely cheerful. I couldn't shake the feeling that I was talking to a young child. I explained to Joe how disappointed we were that the state had destroyed the biological evidence that might have allowed us to prove he was innocent through DNA testing. We had discovered that both the victim and one of his co-defendants had died. The other co-defendant would not say anything about what had really happened, making it extremely difficult for us to challenge Joe's conviction. I then offered our new idea about challenging his sentence as unconstitutional, which might create another way for him to possibly go home. He smiled throughout my explanation, although it was clear he didn't understand all of it. He had a legal pad on his lap, and when I finished, he told me that he had prepared some questions for our visit. During the entire visit, I kept thinking about how he was much more enthusiastic and excited than I'd expected him to be, given his history. When he told me about the questions he had prepared for me, he was practically bubbling. 
He explained that if he ever got out of prison, he might want to be a reporter, so I can tell people what's really going on. He spoke with great pride when he announced that he was ready to ask his questions. Joe, I'll be happy to answer any questions. Fire away. He read with some difficulty. Do you have children? He looked up at me expectantly. No, I don't have children. I have nieces and nephews, though. What is your favorite color? He once again smiled eagerly. I chuckled since I don't have a favorite color, but I wanted to respond to him. Brown. Okay, my last question is the most important. He looked up at me briefly with big eyes and smiled. He then became serious and read his question. Who is your favorite cartoon character? He was beaming when he looked at me. Please tell the truth. I really want to know. I couldn't think of anything and had to force myself to keep smiling. Wow, Joe, I honestly don't know. Can I think about that and get back to you? I'll write you with my answer. He nodded enthusiastically. Over the next three months, I received a flood of scrawled letters from Joe, one almost every day. The letters were usually short statements about what he'd eaten that day or what show he'd seen on television. Sometimes there were just two or three Bible verses he had copied. He would always ask me to write him back and let him know if his handwriting was improving. Sometimes the letters contained only a few words or a single question like, Do you have friends? We filed a petition to challenge Joe's sentence as unconstitutionally cruel and unusual punishment. We knew that there would be procedural objections to filing it nearly 20 years after his sentencing, but we thought the Supreme Court's recent decision banning the death penalty for juveniles could provide a basis for relief. In 2005, the court recognized that differences between children and adults required that kids be shielded from the death penalty under the Eighth Amendment. My staff and I discussed how we might use the constitutional reasoning that banned the execution of children as a legal basis for challenging juvenile life without parole sentences. We filed similar challenges to life without parole sentences in several other cases involving children, including Ian Manuel's case. Ian was still being held in solitary confinement in Florida. We filed cases in Missouri, Michigan, Iowa, Mississippi, North Carolina, Arkansas, Delaware, Wisconsin, Nebraska, and South Dakota. We filed a case in Pennsylvania to help Trina Garnett, the girl who had been convicted for arson. She was still struggling at the women's prison, but was excited about the possibility of our doing something to change her sentence. We filed a case in California for Antonio Nunez. We filed two cases in Alabama. Ashley Jones was a 14-year-old girl who had been convicted of killing two family members when her older boyfriend tried to help her escape her family. Ashley suffered from a horrific history of abuse and neglect. When she was still a teenager serving her sentence at the Tutwiler Prison for Women, she started writing to me to ask about various legal decisions she'd read about in the newspaper. She never asked for legal assistance. She simply asked about what she'd read and expressed interest in the law and our work. She started sending notes congratulating me and EJI whenever we won a death penalty appeal. When we decided to challenge death in prison sentences imposed on children, 
I told her we might be able to finally challenge her sentence. She was thrilled. Evan Miller was another 14-year-old condemned to die in prison in Alabama. Evan is from a poor white family in North Alabama. His difficult life was punctuated by suicide attempts that started at age seven when he was in elementary school. His parents were abusive and had drug addiction problems, so he was in and out of foster care. But he was living with his mother at the time of the crime. A middle-aged neighbor, Cole Cannon, had come over one night seeking to buy drugs from Evan's mother. The 14-year-old Evan and his 16-year-old friend went to the man's house with him to play cards. Cannon gave the teens drugs and played drinking games with them. At one point, he sent the boys out to buy more drugs. The boys returned and stayed over as it got later and later. Eventually, the boys thought Cannon had passed out and tried to steal his wallet. Cannon was startled awake and jumped on Evan. The older boy responded by hitting the man in the head with a bat. Both boys started beating him and then set his trailer on fire. Cole Cannon died, and Evan and his friend were charged with capital murder. The older boy made a deal with prosecutors and got a parole-eligible life sentence, while Evan was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. I got involved in Evan's case right after his trial and filed a motion to reduce his sentence, even though it was the mandatory punishment for someone convicted of capital murder who was too young to be executed. At a hearing, I asked the judge to reconsider Evan's sentence in light of his age. The prosecutor argued, "I think he should be executed. He deserves the death penalty." He then lamented that the law no longer authorized the execution of children. Because he just couldn't wait to put this fourteen-year-old boy in the electric chair and kill him, the judge denied our motion. When I visited Evan at the jail, we would have long talks. He loved to talk about anything he could think of when we were together to extend our visits. We talked about sports and exercise. We talked about books. We talked about his family. We talked about music. We talked about all the things he wanted to do when he grew up. He was usually animated and excited about something, although when he didn't hear from his family for a while or had to deal with some bad incident at the prison, he would become extremely depressed. He couldn't understand some of the hostile and violent behavior he saw from prisoners and the other people around him. He once told me that a guard had punched him in the chest just because he had asked a question about meal times. He started crying as he told me this because he just couldn't understand why the officer had done that. Evan was sent to the Saint Clair Correctional Facility, a maximum security adult prison. Not long after he first arrived, he was attacked by another prisoner, who stabbed him nine times. He recovered without serious physical problems, but was traumatized by the experience and disoriented by the violence. When he talked about his own act of violence, he seemed deeply confused about how it was possible he could have done something so destructive. Most of the juvenile lifer cases we handled involved clients who shared Evan's confusion about their adolescent behavior. Many had matured into adults who were much more thoughtful and reflective. They were now capable of making responsible and appropriate decisions. Almost all of the cases involved condemned people. Marked by the tragic irony that they were now nothing like the confused children who had committed a violent crime, they had all changed in some significant way. This made them distinct from most of my clients who committed crimes as adults. 
that I was involved in the cases of teens who'd committed violent crimes was itself ironic. I was 16 years old, living in southern Delaware. I was headed outside one day when our phone rang. I watched my mother answer it as I strolled past her. A minute later, I heard her scream inside the house. I ran back inside and saw her lying on the floor sobbing, Daddy, Daddy, while the phone's receiver dangled from its base. I picked it up. My aunt was on the line. She told me that my grandfather had been murdered. My grandparents had been separated for many years, and my grandfather had for some time lived alone in the South Philadelphia housing projects. It was there that he was attacked and stabbed to death by several teens who had broken into his apartment to steal his black and white television set. He was 86 years old. Our large family was devastated by his senseless murder. My grandmother, who had separated from my grandfather many years earlier, was especially unnerved by the crime and his death. I had older cousins who worked in law enforcement and sought information about the boys who committed the crime. I remember them being more astonished than vengeful about the immaturity and lack of judgment the juveniles had demonstrated. We all kept saying and thinking the same thing. They didn't have to kill him. There was no way an 86 year old man could have stopped them from getting away with their paltry loot. My mother could never make sense of it, and neither could I. I knew kids at school who seemed out of control and violent, but I still wondered how someone could be so pointlessly destructive. My grandfather's murder left us with so many questions. Now, decades later, I was starting to understand. In preparing litigation on behalf of the children we were representing, it was clear that these shocking and senseless crimes couldn't be evaluated honestly without understanding the lives these children had been forced to endure. And in banning the death penalty for juveniles, the Supreme Court had paid great attention to the emerging body of medical research about adolescent development and brain science and its relevance to juvenile crime and culpability. Contemporary neurological, psychological, and sociological evidence has established that children are impaired by immature judgment and underdeveloped capacity for self regulation and responsibility. Vulnerability to negative influences and outside pressures, and a lack of control over their own impulses and their environment. Generally considered to encompass ages 12 to 18, adolescence is defined by radical transformation, including the obvious and often distressing physical changes associated with puberty, increases in height and weight, and sex related changes. As well as progressive gains in the capacity for reasoned and mature judgment, impulse control, and autonomy. As we later explained to the court, experts had come to the following conclusion A rapid and dramatic increase in the dopaminergic activity within the socio emotional system around the time of puberty drives the young adolescent toward increased sensation seeking and risk taking. This increase in reward seeking. Precedes the structural maturation of the cognitive control system and its connections to areas of the socio emotional system. A maturational process that is gradual unfolds over the course of adolescence and permits more advanced self regulation and impulse control. The temporal gap between the arousal of the socio emotional system, which is an early adolescent development, 
and the full maturation of the cognitive control system, which occurs later, creates a period of heightened vulnerability to risk-taking during middle adolescence. These biological and psychosocial developments explain what is obvious to parents, teachers, and any adult who reflects on his or her own teenage years. Young teens lack the maturity, independence, and future orientation that adults have acquired. It seemed odd to have to explain in a court of law something so fundamental about childhood, but the commitment to harsh punishments for children was so intense and reactionary that we had to articulate these basic facts. We argued in court that, relative to that of adults, young teenage judgment is handicapped in nearly every conceivable way. Young adolescents lack life experience and background knowledge to inform their choices. They struggle to generate options and to imagine consequences. And perhaps for good reason, they lack the necessary self-confidence to make reasoned judgments and stick by them. We argued that neuroscience and the new information about brain chemistry help explain the impaired judgment that teens often display. When these basic deficits that burden all children are combined with the environments that some poor children experience, environments marked by abuse, violence, dysfunction, neglect, and the absence of loving caretakers, adolescents can leave kids vulnerable to the sort of extremely poor decision-making that results in tragic violence. We were able to make persuasive arguments about the differences between children and adults, but that wasn't the only obstacle to relief. The Supreme Court's Eighth Amendment precedent requires not only that a particular sentence offend evolving standards of decency, but also that it be unusual. In the cases where the Supreme Court had previously granted relief under the Eighth Amendment, the number of sentences challenged usually totaled fewer than a hundred or so nationwide. In 2002, there were about a hundred people with mental retardation facing execution when the court banned the death penalty for people with intellectual disability. In 2005, there were fewer than 75 juvenile offenders on death row when the court banned the death penalty for kids. Even smaller numbers accompanied the court's decisions banning the death penalty for non-homicide offenses. Our litigation strategy was complicated by the fact that more than 2,500 children in the United States had been sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. We decided to focus on two subsets of kids to help the court grant relief if it wasn't ready to ban all life sentences without parole for juveniles. We focused on the youngest kids, who were 13 and 14. There were fewer than 100 children under the age of 15 who had been sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. We also focused on the children who, like Joe Sullivan, Ian Manuel, and Antonio Nunez, had been convicted of non-homicide offenses. Most juveniles sentenced to life imprisonment without parole had been convicted of homicide crimes. We estimated there were fewer than 200 juvenile offenders serving life without parole for non-homicide offenses. We argued that the ban on the death penalty had implications because a death-in-prison sentence is also a terminal, unchangeable, once-and-for-all judgment on the whole life of a human being that declares him or her forever unfit to be part of civil society. We asked courts to recognize that such a judgment cannot rationally be passed on children below a certain age because they are unfinished products, human works in progress. 
They stand at a peculiarly vulnerable moment in their lives. Their potential for growth and change is enormous. Almost all of them will outgrow criminal behavior, and it is practically impossible to detect the few who will not. They are the products of an environment over which they have no real control. Passengers through narrow pathways in a world they never made, as we wrote in our brief. We emphasized the incongruity of not allowing children to smoke, drink, vote, drive without restrictions, give blood, buy guns, and a range of other behaviors because of their well-recognized lack of maturity and judgment, while simultaneously treating some of the most at-risk, neglected, and impaired children exactly the same as full-grown adults in the criminal justice system. Initially, we had little success with these arguments. Joe Sullivan's judge ruled that our claims were meritless. In other states, we were met with similar skepticism and resistance. Eventually, we exhausted options provided by the state of Florida in Joe Sullivan's case and filed an appeal in the U.S. Supreme Court. In May 2009, the Supreme Court agreed to review the case. It felt like a miracle. Review in the Supreme Court is rare enough. But the possibility that the court might create constitutional relief for children sentenced to die in prison made this opportunity even more thrilling. It was a chance to change the rules across the country. The court granted review in Joe's case and in another Florida case that involved a 16-year-old teen convicted of a non-homicide and sentenced to life with no parole. Terrence Graham was from Jacksonville, Florida. And had been on probation when he was accused of trying to rob a store. As a result of his new arrest, the judge revoked Terence's probation and sentenced him to die in prison. Because both Joe's case and the Graham case involved non-homicides, it was likely that if we won a favorable ruling from the court, it would only apply to life without parole sentences imposed on juveniles convicted of non-homicides. But that was an exciting possibility. The cases generated a lot of national media attention. When we filed our brief in the U.S. Supreme Court, national organizations joined us and filed amicus briefs urging the court to rule in our favor. We received support from the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Bar Association, the American Medical Association. Former judges, former prosecutors, social workers, civil rights groups, human rights groups, even some victims' rights groups, former juvenile offenders who had later become well-known public figures filed supporting documents, including very conservative politicians like former U.S. Senator Alan Simpson from Wyoming. Simpson had spent 18 years in the Senate, including 10 as the Republican Whip, the second-ranking senator in his party. He had also been a former juvenile felon. He had been adjudicated as a juvenile delinquent when he was 17 for multiple convictions for arson, theft, aggravated assault, gun violence, and finally assaulting a police officer. He later confessed, "I was a monster." His life didn't begin to change until he found himself imprisoned in a sea of puke and urine following another arrest. Senator Simpson knew firsthand that you cannot judge a person's full potential by his juvenile misconduct. Another brief was filed on behalf of former child soldiers 
whose terrifying behavior after being forced into violent African militias made the crimes of our clients seem much less aggravated by comparison. Yet, these former child soldiers, rescued from their armies, had mostly recovered and been widely embraced at American colleges and universities where many of them had thrived. In November 2009, after the briefs were filed in Joe's case and the Graham case, I went to Washington for my third U.S. Supreme Court oral argument. There was a lot more media attention and national news coverage than in any of my earlier cases. The court was packed. There were hundreds of people outside the court as well. A wide assortment of children's rights advocates, lawyers, and mental health experts were watching closely when we asked the court to declare life-without-parole sentences imposed on children unconstitutional. During the argument, the court was feisty, and it was impossible to predict what the justices were going to do. I told the court that the United States is the only country in the world that imposes life imprisonment without parole sentences on children. I explained that condemning children violates international law, which bans these sentences for children. We showed the court that these sentences are disproportionately imposed on children of color. We argue that the phenomenon of life sentences imposed on children is largely a result of harsh punishments that were created for career adult criminals and were never intended for children, which made the imposition of such a sentence on juveniles like Terrence Graham and Joe Sullivan unusual. I also told the court that to say to any child of 13 that he is fit only to die in prison is cruel. I had no way of knowing if the court had been persuaded. I had promised Joe, whose name and case were constantly being discussed on television, that I would visit him after the argument in the Supreme Court. At first, Joe was very excited by all the attention his case was generating, but then the guards and other prisoners started making fun of him and treating him more harshly than usual. They seemed to resent the attention he was getting. I told him that now that the argument was over, things would calm down. For weeks, he'd been working on memorizing a poem he said he'd written. When I asked if he'd really written it, he acknowledged that another inmate helped him, but his excitement about the poem was undiminished. He had repeatedly promised that he would recite it for me when I visited him after the argument. When I arrived at the prison, Joe was wheeled into the visitation area without any difficulty. I talked to him about the argument in Washington, but he was much more interested in preparing me to hear his poem. I could tell he was nervous about whether he'd be able to do it. I cut short my report about his case so I could hear his poem. He closed his eyes to concentrate, and then he began to recite the lines. Roses are red, violets are blue, soon I'll come home to live with you. My life will be better, happy I'll be. You'll be like my dad and my family. We'll have fun with our friends, and others will see. I'm a good person. Um, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Um, he couldn't remember the last line. He looked up at the ceiling, then at the floor, straining to remember. He squeezed his eyes, trying to force the last words to mind, but they wouldn't come. I was tempted to supply him a line just to help him get through it. So be happy for me, or now people will see. 
but I realized that creating a line for him wasn't the right thing to do, so I just sat there. Finally, he seemed to accept that he wouldn't remember the line. I thought he'd be upset, but when it was clear that he wouldn't remember the last line, he just started laughing. I smiled at him, relieved. For some reason, it became funnier and funnier to him that he couldn't think of the last line, until he abruptly stopped laughing and looked at me. Oh, wait! I, I think the last line. Actually, I think the last line is just what I said. The last line is just, "I'm a good person." He paused, and I looked at him skeptically for several seconds. I said it before I thought about it. Really? I should have stopped, but I continued. We'll have fun with our friends, and others will see. I'm a good person. He looked at me for an instant with a serious expression, and then we both broke out simultaneously in wild laughter. I wasn't sure I should be laughing, but Joe was laughing, which made me think it was okay. Honestly, I couldn't help it. In a few seconds, we were both in hysterics. He was rocking in his wheelchair from side to side with laughter, clapping his hands. I couldn't stop laughing either. I was trying hard to stop, but failing. We looked at each other as we laughed. I watched Joe, who laughed like a little boy, but I saw the lines in his face and even the emergence of a few prematurely gray hairs on his head. I realized, even while I laughed, that his unhappy childhood had been followed by unhappy, imprisoned teenage years, followed by unhappy incarceration through young adulthood. All of a sudden, it occurred to me what a miracle it was that he could still laugh. I thought about how wrong the world is about Joe Sullivan, and how much I wanted to win his case. We both finally calmed down. I tried to speak as sincerely as I could manage. Joe, it's a very, very nice poem. I paused. I think it's beautiful. He beamed at me, and clapped his hands. Chapter Fifteen. Broken. Walter's decline came quickly. The moments of confusion got longer and longer. He started forgetting things he had done just a few hours earlier. The details of his business slipped away from him, and managing work became complicated in ways he couldn't understand, which depressed him. At some point, I went over his records with him, and he'd been selling things at a fraction of their worth. And losing a lot of money. A film crew from Ireland came to Alabama to make a short documentary about the death penalty that would feature Walter's case, and the cases of two other Alabama death row prisoners. James Bo Cochran had been released after spending nearly twenty years on Alabama's death row. A new trial was awarded after federal courts reversed his conviction because of racial bias during jury selection. At his new trial. A racially diverse jury found him not guilty of murder, and he was freed. The third man featured in the film, Robert Tarver, also adamantly maintained his innocence. The prosecutor later admitted that his jury had been illegally selected in a racially discriminatory manner, but courts refused to review the claim because the defense lawyer failed to make an adequate objection. So Tarver was executed. We hosted a premiere of the film at our office. And I invited Walter and Bo to address the audience. About seventy-five people from the community gathered in EJI's meeting room, where we screened the film. Walter struggled. 
He was more terse than usual and looked at me frantically whenever someone asked him a question. I told him that he wouldn't have to do any more presentations. His sister told me that he'd started wandering in the evenings and getting lost. He began drinking heavily, something he'd never done before. He told me that he was anxious all the time and that the alcohol calmed his nerves. Then one day he collapsed. He was at a hospital in Mobile when they reached me in Montgomery. I drove down to speak with his doctor, who told me that Walter had advancing dementia, likely trauma-induced, and that he would need constant care. The doctor also said the dementia would progress and that Walter would likely become incapacitated. We met with Walter's family at our office and agreed that he should move to Huntsville to live with a relative who could provide consistent care. It worked for a while, but Walter became agitated there, and he was out of money, so he moved back to Monroeville, where his sister Katie Lee agreed to watch him. For a while, he did much better in Monroeville, but then his condition began to deteriorate again. Soon, Walter needed to be moved into the sort of facility that provided care for the elderly and infirm. Most places wouldn't take him because he had been convicted of a felony. Even when we explained that he was wrongfully convicted and later proved innocent, we couldn't get anyone to admit him. EJI now had a social worker on staff, Mariah Morrison, who began working with Walter and his family to find a suitable placement for him. It was an extremely frustrating and maddening process. Mariah eventually found a place in Montgomery that agreed to take Walter for a short stay, no longer than 90 days. He went there while we figured out what to do next. The whole thing made me incredibly sad. Our workload was increasing too quickly. I had just argued Joe Sullivan's case at the U.S. Supreme Court, and I was anxiously awaiting that judgment. The Alabama Supreme Court had scheduled execution dates for several death row prisoners who had completed the appeals process. For years, we'd been fearing what would happen when a sizable number of condemned prisoners exhausted their appeals. More than a dozen people were now vulnerable to execution dates, and we knew that it would be extremely difficult to block those executions given the current legal climate in Alabama, combined with the limits on federal court review in capital cases. I met with our staff and we made the difficult decision to represent all of the people who were scheduled for execution and didn't have counsel. A few weeks later, I found myself deeply distressed. I was worried about the execution dates that were set for every other month in Alabama. I was worried about what the U.S. Supreme Court would do with all of the children condemned to die in prison, now that it had the issue to consider. I was worried about our funding and whether we had enough staff and resources to meet the demands of our expanding docket. I was worried about several clients who were struggling. When I got to the Montgomery Nursing Home to see Walter a week after he'd arrived there, I felt like I'd been worrying all day. Walter sat in a common room with older, heavily medicated people watching TV. It was jarring to see him sitting in a hospital gown among people so compromised and infirm. I stopped before I walked into the room and looked at him. He hadn't seen me yet. He looked sleepy and unhappy, slumped in a reclining chair. His head rested on his hand. He was staring in the general direction of the television, but it didn't seem like he was watching the program. He wasn't shaved, and something he'd eaten had crusted on his chin. 
There was a sadness in his eyes I'd never seen before. Looking at him, I felt my heart sink. A part of me wanted to leave. A nurse saw me standing outside the room and asked if I was there to see someone. I told her I was, and she smiled sympathetically. When the nurse escorted me into the room, I walked up to Walter and put my hand on his shoulder. He stirred and looked up, then gave me a broad smile. Hey, there he is! He sounded cheerful, and suddenly he looked like himself. He started laughing and stood up. I gave him a hug. I was relieved he hadn't recognized some family members recently. How you doing? I asked him while he leaned on me slightly. Well, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. We started walking to his room where we could talk privately. Are you feeling better? It was not a sensible question, but I was a little unnerved seeing Walter like this. He'd lost weight, and his gown wasn't tied in the back, which he didn't seem to notice. I stopped him. Wait, let me help you out. I tied the strings on his gown and we continued to his room. He moved slowly and cautiously, sliding his feet in his slippers across the floor as if he'd forgotten how to pick them up. He grabbed my arm a few feet down the hall and leaned on me as we slowly made our way. Well, I told them people I got plenty of cars, plenty of cars. He spoke emphatically, with much more excitement than I'd heard from him in a while. All different colors, shapes, and sizes. The man say, your cars don't work. I told him my cars do work, too. He looked at me. You may have to talk to that man about my cars, okay? I nodded and thought of his field of metal. You do have lots of cars. I know, he cut me off and started laughing. See, I told them people, but they didn't believe me. I told them. He was smiling and chuckling now, but he looked confused and not himself. Then people think I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know exactly what I'm talking about. He spoke defiantly. We reached his room and he sat down on his bed while I pulled up a chair. He became still and quiet and suddenly looked very worried. Well, looks like I'm back here, he said with a heavy sigh. They done put me back on death row. His voice was mournful. I tried, I tried, I tried, but they just won't let me be. He looked me in the eye. Why they want to do somebody like they're doing me is something I'll never understand. Why are people like that? I mind my own business. I don't hurt nobody. I try to do right. And no matter what I do, people come along and put me back on death row for nothing. Nothing. I ain't done nothing to nobody. Nothing, nothing, nothing. He was becoming agitated, so I put my hand on his arm. Hey, it's okay, I said as gently as I could. It's not as bad as it seems. I think, you're going to get me out, right? You're going to get me off the row again. Walter, this isn't the row. You haven't been feeling well, and so you're here so you can get better. This is a hospital. They've got me again. You've got to help me. He was starting to panic, and I wasn't sure what to do. Then he started crying. Please, get me out of here, please. They're going to execute me for no good reason. I don't want to die in no electric chair. He was crying now with a forcefulness that alarmed me. I moved to the bed next to him and put my arm around him. It's okay. It's okay. Walter, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. He was trembling, and I got up so that he could lie down. 
He stopped crying as his head hit the pillow. I began talking to him softly about trying to make arrangements so he could stay at home, and how we needed to find help, and that the problem was that it really wasn't safe for him to be alone. I could see his eyes drooping as I spoke, and within a matter of minutes he was sound asleep. I'd been with him less than twenty minutes. I pulled his blankets up and watched him sleep. In the hallway, I asked one of the nurses how he'd been doing. He's really sweet, she said. We love having him here. He's nice to the staff, very polite and gentle. Sometimes he gets upset and starts talking about prison and death row. We didn't know what he was talking about, but one of the girls looked him up on the internet, and that's when we read what happened to him. Somebody said someone like that is not supposed to be here, but I told them that our job is to help anybody who needs help. Well, the state acknowledged that he didn't do anything wrong. He is innocent. The nurse looked at me sweetly. I know, Mr. Stevenson, but a lot of people here think that once you go to prison, whether you belong there or not, you become a dangerous person, and they don't want to have nothing to do with you. Well, that's a shame. It was all I could muster. I left the facility shaken and disturbed. My cell phone rang as soon as I stepped outside. The Alabama Supreme Court had just scheduled another death row prisoner's execution. One of EJI's best lawyers was now serving as our deputy director. Randy Suskin interned with us as a law student when he was at Georgetown University and became a staff attorney right out of law school. He proved to be an outstanding litigator and an extremely effective project manager. I called Randy and we discussed what we would do to block the execution, although we both knew that it was going to be difficult to obtain a stay at this stage. I told Randy about my visit with Walter and how painful it had been to see him. We were silent on the phone for a while, something that happens a lot when we talk. The increasing rate of executions in Alabama went against the national trend. Media coverage of all the innocent people wrongly convicted. Had an effect on the death sentencing rate in America, which began to decline in 1999. But the terrorist attacks in New York City on September 11, 2001, and threats of terrorism and global conflict seemed to disrupt the progress toward a repeal of capital punishment. But then, a few years later, rates of execution and death sentencing were once again decreasing. By 2010, the number of annual executions fell to less than half the number in 1999. Several states were seriously debating ending the death penalty. New Jersey, New York, Illinois, New Mexico, Connecticut, and Maryland all took capital punishment off the books. Even in Texas, where nearly 40 percent of the nearly 1,400 modern era executions in the United States had taken place, the death sentencing rate had dropped dramatically. And the pace of executions had finally slowed. Alabama's death sentencing rate had also dropped from the late 1990s, but it was still the highest in the country. By the end of 2009, Alabama had the nation's highest execution rate per capita. Every other month, someone was facing execution, and we were scrambling to keep up. Jimmy Callahan, Danny Bradley, Max Payne, Jack Trawick. And Willie McNair were executed in 2009. We had actively tried to block these executions, mostly by arguing about the way the executions were being carried out. 
In 2004, I argued a case at the U.S. Supreme Court that raised questions about the constitutionality of certain methods of execution. States had largely abandoned execution by electrocution, gas chamber, firing squad, and hanging in favor of lethal injection. Viewed as more sterile and serene, lethal injection had become the most common method for the sanctioned killing of people in virtually every death state. But questions about the painlessness and efficacy of lethal injection were emerging. In the case I argued before the court, we challenged the constitutionality of Alabama's protocols for lethal injection. David Nelson had very compromised veins. He was in his sixties and had been a drug addict earlier in his life, making access to his veins difficult. Members of the correctional staff were not able to insert an IV in his arm in order to carry out his execution without medical complications. The Hippocratic Oath prevents doctors and medical personnel from participating in executions, so Alabama officials plan for untrained correctional staff to take a knife and make a two-inch incision in Mr. Nelson's arm or groin, so that they could find a vein in which to inject him with toxins and kill him. We argued that without anesthesia, the procedure would be needlessly painful and cruel. The state of Alabama had argued that procedural rules barred Mr. Nelson from challenging the constitutionality of the protocol. The U.S. Supreme Court intervened. The legal question was whether condemned prisoners could file civil rights actions to challenge arguably unconstitutional methods of execution. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was especially active during the oral argument, asking me lots of questions about the propriety of correctional staff engaging in medical procedures. The court ruled unanimously in our favor, deciding that a condemned prisoner could challenge unconstitutional methods of execution by filing a civil rights case. David Nelson died of natural causes a year after we won relief. Following the Nelson litigation, questions about the drug combination that most states use to carry out lethal injections arose. Many states were using drugs that had been banned for animal euthanasia because they caused a painful and torturous death. The drugs weren't readily available in the United States, and so states had started importing them from European manufacturers. When the news spread that the drugs were being used in executions in the United States, European producers stopped making them available. The drugs became scarce, which prompted state correctional authorities to obtain them illegally. Without complying with FDA rules that regulate the interstate sale and transfer of drugs, drug raids of state correctional facilities were a bizarre consequence of this surreal drug dealing to carry out executions. The U.S. Supreme Court in Bayes v. Rees later held that the execution protocols and drug combinations weren't inherently unconstitutional. The executions would resume. What that meant for Alabama death row prisoners and EJI staff was 17 executions in 30 months. It happened at the same time that we were representing children sentenced to life without parole all over the country. I'd flown to South Dakota, Iowa, Michigan, Missouri, Arkansas, Virginia, Wisconsin, and California to argue cases on behalf of condemned children over the preceding months. The courts, procedures, and players were all different. And the travel was exhausting. We were still very actively litigating on behalf of condemned children in Mississippi, Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana, 
southern states where we had litigated previously. And, of course, our Alabama docket had never been more jammed or demanding. In a two-week period, I'd been in California visiting Antonio Nunez at a remote prison in the middle of the state before arguing his case in an appellate court there, while also actively trying to win relief for Trina Garnett in Pennsylvania and Ian Manuel in Florida. I had visited Ian and Joe Sullivan in a Florida prison, and both of them were struggling. Prison officials weren't allowing Joe to have regular access to his wheelchair, and he had fallen repeatedly and injured himself. Ian was still in isolation. Trina's medical condition was worsening. I was having an increasingly difficult time managing it all. At the same time, Walter's authorized length of stay at the Montgomery facility was up, so we frantically made arrangements for him to move back home, where his sister would do the best she could to take care of him. It was a worrisome situation for him and his family, for all of us. By the time Jimmy Dill was scheduled for execution in Alabama, the entire EJI staff was exhausted. The execution date couldn't have come at a more difficult time. We had no prior involvement in Mr. Dill's case, which meant getting up to speed in the 30 days before his scheduled execution. It was an unusual crime. Mr. Dill was accused of shooting someone during the course of a drug deal after an argument erupted. The shooting victim did not die. Mr. Dill was arrested and charged with aggravated assault. He was in jail for nine months awaiting trial while the victim was released from the hospital and was recovering fine. But after several months of caring for him at home, the victim's wife apparently abandoned him, and he became gravely ill. When he died, state prosecutors changed the charges against Mr. Dill from assault to capital murder. Jimmy Dill suffered from an intellectual disability and had been sexually and physically abused throughout his childhood. He struggled with drug addiction until his arrest. He was appointed counsel who did very little to prepare the case for trial. Almost no investigation was done into the poor medical care the victim had received, care that constituted the actual cause of death. The state made a plea offer of 20 years, but it was never adequately communicated to Mr. Dill. So he went to trial, was convicted, and was sentenced to death. The appellate courts affirmed his conviction and sentence. He couldn't find volunteer counsel for his post-conviction appeals, so most of his legal claims were procedurally barred because he had missed the filing deadlines. When we first looked at Mr. Dill's case a few weeks before his scheduled execution, no court had reviewed critical issues about the reliability of his conviction and sentence. Capital murder requires an intent to kill, and there was a persuasive argument that there was no intent to kill in this case and that poor health care had caused the victim's death. Most gunshot victims don't die after nine months, and it was surprising that the state was seeking the death penalty in this case. And the U.S. Supreme Court had previously banned the execution of people with mental retardation. So, Mr. Dill should have been shielded from the death penalty because of his intellectual disability, but no one had investigated or presented evidence in support of the claim. Along with his other challenges, Mr. Dill had enormous difficulty speaking. He had a speech impediment that caused him to stutter badly. When he became excited or agitated, it got worse. 
because he had not previously had a lawyer who would see him or speak to him, Mr. Dill saw our intervention as something of a miracle. I sent my young lawyers to meet with him regularly after we got involved, and Mr. Dill called me frequently. We tried frantically to get the courts to issue a stay based on the new issues we'd uncovered, to no avail. Courts are deeply resistant to reviewing claims once a condemned prisoner has completed the appeals process the first time. Even the claim of mental retardation was thwarted because no court would grant a hearing at such a late stage. Although I knew the odds were against us, Mr. Dill's severe disabilities had made me privately hopeful that maybe a judge would be concerned and at least let us present additional evidence. But every court told us, too late. On the day of the scheduled execution, I once again found myself talking to a man who was about to be strapped down and killed. I had asked Mr. Dill to call throughout the day because we were waiting to hear the outcome of our final stay request at the U.S. Supreme Court. Early in the day, he sounded anxious, but he kept insisting that things would work out, and he told me he wasn't going to give up hope. He tried to express his gratitude for what we had done in the weeks leading up to his execution. He thanked me for sending staff down to visit him regularly. We had located family members with whom he had reconnected. We told him that we believed that he had been unfairly convicted and sentenced. Even though we hadn't yet persuaded a court to stay his execution, our efforts seemed to help him cope. But then the Supreme Court denied our final request for a stay of execution, and there was nothing else to do. He would be executed in less than an hour, and I had to tell him that the court would not grant him a stay. I felt overwhelmed. We spoke on the phone shortly before he was taken into the execution chamber. Listening to him was hard. He was stuttering worse than usual and having great difficulty getting his words out. The imminent execution had unnerved him, but he was trying valiantly to express his gratitude for our efforts. I sat for a long time holding the phone while he strained to speak. It was heartbreaking. At one point I remembered something I had completely forgotten until that moment. When I was a boy, my mother took me to church. When I was about ten years old, I was outside of our church with my friends, one of whom had brought a visiting relative to the service. The visiting child was a shy, skinny boy about my height who was clinging to his cousin nervously. He didn't say anything as the group of us chatted away. I asked him where he was from, and when this child tried to speak, he stumbled horribly. He had a severe speech impediment and couldn't get his mouth to cooperate. He couldn't even say the name of the town where he lived. I had never seen someone stutter like that. I thought he must have been joking or playing around, so I laughed. My friend looked at me worriedly, but I didn't stop laughing. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw my mother looking at me with an expression I'd never seen before. It was a mix of horror, anger, and shame all focused on me. It stopped my laughing instantly. I'd always felt adored by my mom, so I was unnerved when she called me over. When I got to her, she was very angry with me. What are you doing? What? I, I didn't do... Don't you ever laugh at someone because they can't get their words out right. Don't you ever do that. I'm sorry. 
I was devastated to be reprimanded by my mom so harshly. Mom, I didn't mean to do anything wrong. You should know better, Brian. I'm sorry. I thought, I don't want to hear it, Brian. There is no excuse, and I'm very disappointed in you. Now, I want you to go back over there and tell that little boy that you're sorry. Yes, ma'am. Then I want you to give that little boy a hug. Huh? Then I want you to tell him that you love him. I looked up at her and, to my horror, saw that she was dead serious. I had reacted as apologetically as I possibly could, but this was way too much. Mom, I can't go over and tell that boy I love him. People will. She gave me that look again. I somberly turned around and returned to my group of friends. They had obviously seen my mother scolding. I could tell because they were all staring at me. I went up to the little boy who had struggled to speak. Look, man, I'm sorry. I was genuinely apologetic for laughing and even more deeply regretful of the situation I'd put myself in. I looked over at my mother who was still staring at me. I lunged at the boy to give him a very awkward hug. I think I startled him by grabbing him like that, but when he realized that I was trying to hug him, his body relaxed and he hugged me back. My friends looked at me oddly as I spoke. Um, also, um, I love you. I tried to say it as insincerely as I could get away with and half smiled as I spoke. I was still hugging the boy so he couldn't see the disingenuous look on my youthful face. It made me feel less weird to smile like it was a joke. But then the boy hugged me tighter and whispered in my ear. He spoke flawlessly without a stutter and without hesitation. I love you too. There was such tenderness and earnestness in his voice, and just like that, I thought I would start crying.